So when it comes to the race report, which has just been published, the reason why I'm doing this is I literally have not been able to get it out of my head. And the reason why I can't get it out of my head is for a multitude of reasons. But I think the main reason is because of how much strength this could have if it is not redone or reassessed or at least peer reviewed, right? Because there's a lot of weight behind it to put the responsibility of certain discrepancies in the hands of those individuals who would say that they experience racism on a day-to-day basis. By saying that in, in, um, systemic racism doesn't exist, that's what you're doing. Now, don't get me wrong, I 100% know that there are flaws, for example, in the Afro-Caribbean community. I am fully aware of that and I fully accept those flaws. But to say that any downfalls are purely because of what happens within that society, that's a very, very strong argument to make and it should be backed up adequately with research. Now, as I said before, there's two discussions which are happening. You're right, Dad both are heavily flawed. On the one side, we have people who are taking the report at face value, and this is because they're not statistically literate. So they haven't been trained to critique things analytically, so they take it at face value and they can't really look much deeper than that. On the other side of things, unfortunately, we have other individuals who will say that this, the report doesn't match up to my life experience, right? I, I am black and I feel I've been oppressed and this has held me back and this report doesn't reflect my experience. Now, the issue with this is that both sides of the coin don't have any weight because one doesn't know what they're talking about because they're not statistically literate and the other individual is purely looking at things from a very subjective perspective, which means that they are gonna be inherently biased. It'll be the equivalent of, for example, asking people in Gravesend what they think of the town and by them asking and asking and then using that conclusion what they think of the town to assess whether or not it's a good place to live your subjective reality doesn't necessarily play up to reality, right? It's objective versus subjective. Now, when it comes to um, the, the flaws in the report, we're gonna go through this, but one issue is the psychological phenomena of baffling or authority, which is always gonna play a part when it comes to reports like this. And that's basically that people assume something to be right or good when certain jargon is used or when something is very long. I, if I wanted to sell you a car and I used uh, technological, technological jargon to sell you the car and did a long sales pitch, it would make you more likely to buy the car. Now this is gonna happen because it's a statistical report and it's 256 pages long, right? So that's gonna naturally happen. That's something that we wanna really sift through. Now, if I can teach at least one person to actually assess this report based on the weight of its ability to critique the environment of race or the, the, to critique race in the UK, a phenomenon of race in the UK, then I would say that my job is done, right? But when it comes to the issue with bias, which is what we're actually going to go into now, bias can really have a very negative effect on certain communities. Now we see this a lot, for example, in pharmaceuticals where because of the bias behind certain studies and certain research, certain drugs are able to be passed when they shouldn't have been passed. There's one example of an HIV medication which was passed in Africa, which after being peer reviewed was actually no more effective than paracetamol. So a lot of people died because they weren't actually given the right help. Now the issue with this report is in the wrong hand, if certain things aren't 
taken into consideration, for example, say if systemic racism does exist and this report doesn't highlight it, then it means that certain individuals are going to miss out on the care that they actually need. Now, the, the critical analysis is there to help us find underlying truths. We don't want to stack, for example, subjective truth on subjective truth on subjective truth. We want the core truth behind what is actually happening in the UK. And the more that we can actually adequately critique what is happening in the UK, then the better the understanding we have, the more likely we're going to be come, coming up with solutions that actually work, right? Now, a, an example of, for example, poor critical analysis would be the Da Vinci Code, which some of you guys might have read or some of you guys might have watched. And it's where someone comes up with, the, the author comes up with this fictional theory that Jesus has a bloodline which is existing today. Now, people read that book and actually tried to chase down Jesus' bloodline because they couldn't actually critique the information which was in the book, right? That would be an example of where someone cannot adequately critique the information which is in front of them. Now, I focus on education and employment today. And the reason why is I think that education and employment is the greatest asset that someone can have, good education, good opportunity for employment, in social mobility. So that's what I focused on in the, in the report. Now, the first type of bias that we're gonna focus on is confirmation bias. Now, one example is this. If, sorry, if I wanted to write a report on, I wanted someone to write a report on whether coronavirus was actually a real virus or not, it's very unlikely that I would choose someone who has been, been insistent that it doesn't exist for a long time to write the report. Why? Because they're going to be biased. What they will actually try and do, even if it's subconscious, is they will try and confirm their subconscious bias or even their conscious bias. Now, the issue that we have here is Tony Saul, who was the so-called boss behind the report he has he has insisted for 10 15 years that institutional racism doesn't exist so for him to then write the report the issue is that he will then subconsciously or consciously try and confirm his subconscious bias as a bad thing because we want to get to the bottom of the truth we want to get to the underlying truth so if someone, if someone is coming in with an up with a biased perspective it will skew the results of the report the other thing that we see very very consistently throughout the report is cognitive priming now cogn cognitive priming is where i will show you something and I will tell you something to influence the decisions or the way that you see things thereafter. We'd see this a lot in advertising, for example. So if I was to show you a car that I really wanted you to buy, and I showed you an image of someone who you thought was attractive in the passenger seat, then that would cognitively prime you to think that if I can just get that car, I will be in the same position as that individual in the advert, right? We see it also in the dairy industry. If I want you to buy a bottle of milk and I show you loads of cows, grazing on a nice field in a summer's day that's going to cognitively prime you to buy the bottle of milk right regardless of what's actually happening behind closed doors that you're probably not going to get a girl like that or a man like that that fact that the dairy industry is is full of cows in close proximity with passing infections all that kind of thing it doesn't really matter because i've cognitively primed you to believe that that's the the instance now we see this on page 28 where we have of the report, where we have this utopian view of Britain, i.e. the Olympic opening ceremony, where these individuals post Windrush are coming out and, and they're, they're, they're celebrating how good Britain is. Um, and the same is done on page eight with the slave era narrative to be one, and they describe it to basically be 
that the narrative should be Africans transforming themselves into British subjects, right? So this is cognitively priming whoever's reading it to look at Britain in almost a utopian perspective. This may then influence what they actually take from the documents thereafter and the statistics that they see thereafter. Now the issue is that once again this can actually distract the reader from the objective truth. It should be balanced. We might say for example that yes the Olympics were a fantastic example of utopian Britain but we can also see that because of the gentrification that happened thereafter in East London we can see that it caused a lot of turmoil for the individuals living there right so that's more of a balanced perspective. I didn't see much of that in the report. Same when it comes to talking about the slave era. I don't know one black person in my life who has ever spoken about the slave era as being a transformative process or their position or from that point on being a transformative process where Africans have been able to transform themselves into British subjects. I just have not seen it. So we're now going to go on to the next form. So just to cover, we've looked at confirmation bias, which is a bias going into the study of the person who's reporting. We've spoken about cognitive priming, i.e. almost selling the idea to the individual before that we actually look at the data. Now we're going to look at selection bias. Now, this would be the equivalent. I want to show you that my flowers in my garden are very healthy and they're growing very well. Now you might be actually interested, well what's the discrepancy between the red flowers and the white flowers and, and all the roses and the daffodils and all that? And I'm like, don't, don't worry about that, just look at all the flowers, right? Now this is selection bias. I'm asking you to see a generalist view when it fits my hypothesis and my agenda. I, I want to prove that the flowers are growing fine, you don't have to worry about the individual flowers. I'm selecting data to show you which is going to frame your perspective. It might be that, for example, the daffodils are growing 30% faster, but that the roses are growing 20% slower than average. I don't want you to see that. Now, page 28 argues that the pay gap of BAME individuals has reduced to 2.3%. But then we look a bit deeper at the same study that they quoted, and we see actually a discrepancy of about 13 to 15% below average for certain diasporas, for example, West African and Black Caribbean diasporas, who are earning about 13 to 15% less on average than the white counterparts. Now, this generalization of data enables a reporter to tell a story that they want you to hear rather than offering a balanced perspective. Now, if they had then gone on to say that, but then when we look deeper, we can see these inadequate, we can see these discrepancies, then I wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't pull up to me as, as such a strong form of bias as it has, but it has. Um, now, this is also similar to publishing bias, where they only show you what they want to. So pharmaceutical companies uh, do this. So for example, I would need to show that a certain study suggests that this drug is worth taking. Therefore, I could replicate that study and over and over again until I get a result I want and then put that forward as the uh, methodology, put that forward as the study which I actually want to show you, right? So we've got that bias as well. So just to summarize, selection bias is when I show you a, a certain aspect of a study to promote my view or to promote my hypothesis. And we can see this once again on page 28 of, and I think page 28 was covering uh, economic opportunities for those of BAME backgrounds, right? Now, the next form of bias that we're gonna speak about is publishing bias. Now, studies which have very low variability and large sample sizes with replicable results are very reliable. I'll break this down. If, for example, 
I were to give, say if I wanted to show you whether or not a drug worked, and I've got 1,000 doses of this drug and 1,000 participants. Now, if I was to split that group 500, 500 each way, 500 get the drug, the actual drug, and 500 get a placebo. The, and the individuals in that experiment, all 1,000 of them, don't know whether they're taking the placebo or whether they're taking the actual drug. Now, this has large sample size, we've got 1,000 individuals. We've got very low variability because all we're changing without them knowing is what kind of drug they're taking. It means it can be a very reliable study if we show replicable results, i.e. if we can show that those results happen again and again and again, no matter how often that we actually do that study, right? Now, this is the interesting thing. On page 121, they quote a study just like this, where essentially they submitted, so this, was, uh, this study was done by Oxford University and another, um, another the experiment was done under another um, scientist, or group of scientists, where they submitted 2,961 CVs, and then later on we get another study where they submitted 3,200 CVs for job applications, right? The only thing that they did is they changed the surname in the studies, and they found that an individual with a non-English surname would have to submit 50 to 90% more times Oh, sorry, 50 to 90% more submissions to get the same number of interviews. Once again, large sample size, replicable, because the same results were found again and again, or again and again. Very low variability, because all they change is the surname, and we can say that between 50, they have to hand in between 50 to 90% more job applications if they are of, uh, if they have, say, a non-English surname. Now, this was disregarded in the study as being unrepresentative. So they basically said that we can't say that this is actually what happens in real life. Well, I would actually say that that is an indication for further research to whether you want to go into case studies or whether you want to do a bigger study. That's what I would say. But the interesting thing, once again, and this is where we get the discrepancies in, in what they're saying, is that they disregard this highly replicable, low variable study as being unrepresentative, yet they somehow think that the 2012 op Olympics opening ceremony is representative of the British subject. It makes absolutely no sense whatever. On page 100, 122, they also blur the line between race and culture to dilute their findings. So for example, when it comes to the surname, they would say, oh, but this could be more cultural rather than racial. Well, any scientist will tell you any biologist will tell you that race is already a pseudoscience anyway. And most people would probably be able to tell you that if someone's last name sounds Indian, they're probably Indian. If it sounds West African, they're probably West African. So to try and blur the lines is trying to blur, in my opinion, the reader to actually understand it or come to the conclusion themselves that there probably is some bias going on here, which is related to race. The British Medical Journal is one of the most reputable bodies in the world when it comes to giving or providing unbiased information when it comes to health. Now, they said, this is their words, that the report lacks scientific credibility and authority to be used for major policy decisions. Its methodology and language, its lack of scientific expertise, and the well-known opinions of its authors make it more suitable as a political manifesto rather than an authoritative expert report. 
Amanda Parker from the Financial Times also highlighted the cherry picking in the report, saying that they ignored the, university's Aber the University of Aberdeen's findings of whites out-earning ethnic minorities in the UK irrespective of education, i.e. if you're white, it doesn't matter what education you have, you're still going to out-earn on average the average, say, black individual who is well-educated and has a degree, for example. The last form of bias that we're going to be speaking about today is, is just generally poor reporting. They very, very often in this uh, report, to blur the lines, they switch from per capita which from talking about the a group of people per capita, so per individual, to then the general population in general. It once again blurs the lines and is fairly manipulative in my, in my opinion for the reader. Now, this argument took place during the pandemic, for example, that because only the vulnerable die, we shouldn't worry about it. So this was an argument that a lot of people were putting forward. Because only individuals who are vulnerable or who, who are of a certain demographic, of a certain age, because only they die, then therefore we shouldn't really worry about the virus, right? And the same argument is put forth on page 29, which isn't referenced, but it states that numerically the largest disadvantaged group is low-income white boys. I'm not arguing with that because what they're saying is that low-income white boys make up a, lar a far larger group than, say, black individuals, right? Especially those, and go on, especially those from former industrial and coastal towns who are failing at secondary school and are the last people, uh, are, are the least. Uh, likely to go to university. Now, I'm not arguing with this at all, but we can see the immoral argument here. They're basically saying that because these are more people, these people should get the attention rather than these individuals who per capita are worse off than them, for example. We can once again see this on page 122, when rather than state that the, that triple the population of black employees report discrimination to white, i.e. 29% of black employees report discrimination in comparison to 11% for white. They dismiss the reporting as not being the majority of black employees and therefore not being relevant. So once again, this is taking a very biased take on it. You could say that triple the number of individuals who are black report and discrimination at work in comparison to white, but they've chosen to some to say for some reason that because the this number of individuals is not the majority, that it renders them irrelevant. So yeah, that is the summary of the bias, which I think is in the report. Some of the biases I've picked up have been reiterated by the Financial Times and by the British Medical Journal. The reason why I did this video today is because I wanted to arm more people with the right rebuttal to this report, saying that I experience racism on a far greater level than the report provides or gives suggestion to is not an adequate argument because you're trying to argue a large number of statistics by your own personal experience. It doesn't work. For you to argue against the report, you have to pick up the critical inconsistencies. Once again, to conclude, critical analysis, this pure function is just to get to the fundamental truths. Unfortunately, this report, in my opinion, falls way short of being able to do that. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. And um, I think that the issue is that there aren't enough people with good critical analytical skills who are able to filter through it. So we get this 
this inconstructive, this inconstructive rhetoric going on. The reason why I've been able to do this, I would say, is, is because I've got a master's degree. So as part of my master's, we had to learn critical analysis. We had to be able to look out for different biases. Me as an osteopath, I have to do it all the time because loads of times I want to say that a patient got better because of something I did. But when I take my subjective view out of it, I know that they probably just got better because they're more in control, they're sleeping better, they're eating better, they're exercising more, they've got less fear, etc. It's got nothing to do with me putting their hand, my hands on them. And, I, and it's all about me taking my emotions out of the report. And I think that's what a lot of people need to do. Take your emotions out of the report, take your emotions away from the report, don't associate your emotions with the report and look at it for the underlying truth and you'll probably come up far better. So I hope that helps to clear things up. I really hope, uh, I see a lot of individuals of, of certain levels who are very, very good uh, when it comes to critical analysis and I can see that they are at the moment uh, going through the process of peer reviewing the report. I hope this happens on a national level. I hope people start to see the flaws in it. But once again, I'd be interested to hear your view. So thank you so much for watching. Take care. And uh, if you have any questions, just let me know. Thank you.